Heavenly Father, thank you for, um, once again, the joy of gathering. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you reveal uh, who you are and all that you've done in your world, um, uh, that we can learn about your, your plans and purposes for your creation and for us and how we fit into those plans. We thank you um, for your grace to us in the gospel and we pr um, pray that you would soften our hearts now uh, to hear your word to us today. Thank you that you work through your word and we pray that you will accomplish all that you intend for your word in our hearts and lives today for your glory. Amen. Thanks, Naomi. The first reading today is from Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The second reading is from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the word of the Lord. G'day everyone, good to see you. Happy Father's Day. It is Father's Day, which means dads all around the country are reigniting DIY projects with new power tools and maybe a Bunnings gift card. Um, but they don't always go as planned, do they? Uh, here's a photo of my most recent project. It was the plan on the left and that's the reality on the right. No, 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 just, just kidding. Mine wouldn't look that good. Uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes your plans come off, don't they? Sometimes our plans... Uh, uh, come off, sometimes they don't. Uh, things come up to distract you, you might start something, and, uh, but you, you realise along the way your plan is just too ambitious, it's too big, uh, you don't have the skill or the persistence or the tools required to pull it off. Anyone else sort of uh, can relate to that? Maybe you've got a few projects that are just waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, uh, as Steve mentioned just before, we are in this series about the end of everything, uh, thinking about God's plans for his whole creation, for his world, his, his good goal for this world, his good goal for you and for me, for us. Uh, we saw last week uh, the blueprints for that plan. Uh, if you're here last week, hopefully that'll be familiar, that God created this world for his own glory, 
He created a people in his image to rule over his place uh, and so that they might forever enjoy his loving presence. This good, wonderful plan of God for his, this creation that he has made. What we're going to do this week is we're going to go on to reflect about the great threat to that plan. The great threat. Uh, so last week we looked at the first two and the last two chapters of the Bible to see that sort of great plan starting and ending. Uh, this week what we're going to do is we're going to see this great threat as it comes straight after those first two chapters in Genesis 1 and 2. Straight after in Genesis 3. Uh, and we're going to look, think a little bit about that and, it, and the effect that this threat casts. It casts this long and dark shadow over the rest of the Bible's story. Uh, like last week, I'm going to give a summary first up and then sort of work through it with us together. So uh, here we go. This is kind of this, this threat to good, God's good design, and it's in total contrast. Uh, instead of living for God's glory, humanity takes on uh, the, uh, life for their own glory. Humanity pursues life for our own glory. We steal that crown off God's head and try and put it on our own. The fall, the, uh, the Genesis 3 story leaves us seeking our own glory. It also leaves us a people in conflict with one another, living on a condemned and groaning place and rejecting God's loving presence. Rejecting God's loving presence. So you can see the way in which that's just uh, at every level the opposite of God's good design, what he intends for you and me and for this world. And this moment that we're going to look at today gets called the fall, uh, humanity's turning from God, uh, turning from trusting him to being at war with him. And it all places humanity under what the Bible talks about as God's curse, God's curse. This way of living, it has no future it is the root cause of all the evil and sorrow in the world. And God cares too much about his creation to just let it go on. He places this way of life under his curse, his declaration that this is not the way life was supposed to be lived. It doesn't lead to fullness. It doesn't need to lead to life. It only leads to death. So I want to briefly show how this comes through in Genesis 3. So uh, if you have Bibles open, that's probably going to be helpful if you've got your Bible with you. The passages will be up on the screen too, but uh, it's a little ambitious today. We're going to be trying to cover a lot of ground, so there might be some Bible flicking going on. But I want to just show if, uh, if you've got Genesis 3 open, show how this comes through. Most of us will probably be familiar with the story. This shadowy, unexplained figure appears in God's good garden. This serpent, who later in the Bible is identified with the great spiritual enemy of God, Satan. Uh, he tempts the first humans to take God's glory for themselves. You read about that in Genesis 3, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. 
So as we saw last week, God had placed his people in this beautiful garden of abundance and fullness and beauty. He'd put these two special trees in the garden, the tree of life, which was this sort of source of eternal life that they could eat from, but also this tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they weren't to eat from. God wanted them to trust him as their maker and as their king. Trust him to define for them what is good and what is evil. And that tr- this tree was like a physical expression of that trust, a tangible opportunity to rest in God and his word to them. But the serpent comes along and places doubt and mistrust in their minds. Instead of trusting God's word, they make this catastrophic choice and in doing so, they, they, they sort of gra- reach up and try to grasp God's crown and put it on themselves, put it on their own heads. This choice to live not for his glory, not trusting and obeying him, but for their own glory, seeking to define good and evil for themselves. And it's this moment of distrust and disobedience. It's like this floodgates get opened. This floodgates open to a torrent of evil and corruption and death that just sweeps across the world. And so you see that as you keep reading through. Instead of people living in the image of God, uh, the, the God who is love, and together ruling over God's good place, instead of that, this, the curse breaks people apart. Uh, what, that's what happens when each person is seeking a crown, when we're all seeking crowns for our own head, rather than together living under the crown of God. That's what happens. Adam and Eve start blaming and mistrusting each other. You can read it as you go through. Uh, but uh, at one point, God tells Eve what this life under his curse is going to look like for the two of them, for Adam and Eve. Verse 16, uh, God says to the woman, to the woman, he said, I will make your... Pains in childbearing, very severe. With painful labor, will you give birth to children? Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, that, that, word, that little word desire there, yeah, it's interesting. It, it comes up again in the next chapter when one of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain, kills, uh, tries to kill, or God does kill his brother Abel. Um, God says to Cain in that chapter, Sin is crouching at his door, and it desires to have him. Uh, so this desire is getting talked about here, is this desire to dominate, control. And so you get this picture, both Adam and Eve, both trying to control, dominate each other, both live in conflict with one another. Total contrast to God's good design, what he had in mind for them. And you just keep, as you keep reading Genesis, it's just like this, this spiral of violence and conflict just goes down and down and down. It's this huge threat to God's design, his good end for his world. And you think, what is going on? Well, it's, but it's not just the people who are there who are impacted by God's curse. You notice as you read through, it's the whole creation as well. Um, in verse 17 of chapter 3, says this to, to Adam. He turns to Adam and he says, God's saying this, because you listened to your wife and ate the, from the, fruit, uh, the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. 
Do you remember God's design for this, this human pair, um, created equal in his image, given this good uh, task, this responsibility for caring for and ruling the creation? But when they fall, so does the creation below them. When they are cursed, so is the ground. It's this picture of like total corruption of God's good design. But it all stems from this rift in our fundamental relationship, not just with each other, not just with the creation, but the fundamental relationship with God himself. Life under God's curse means life outside of his place, outside the place of his blessing, away from his presence. And that's what you read at the end of the chapter in verse 23. So the Lord God banished him, uh, the man from the, from the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They're shut out from God's presence, from the place of his blessing, into the place of his curse. And so it's just one chapter, right? We've gone from last week, <laughs> the, the kind of this beautiful image, this beautiful description of God's design, to this moment of utter catastrophe. God's project apparently is totally derailed by human sin, human pride. Well, is it derailed? That's the big question that drives us on as we keep reading through the Bible. Is it derailed? Well, no, it's not. There is a hope, the only hope. It's not in the people. It's not in the land. It's in God. It's in God himself. Uh, the only hope they had was that, would, was that God would do something. He, he would do something to undo this curse, to to redirect his creation to his good intended purpose for it, his wonderful end. And that's exactly what he does promise. That's exactly what he does promise. And, and you see this promise right from the start, actually, right from the start, right in the middle of this catastrophe in Genesis 3. Even there, God is gracious. He's still working for his own glory to bring about a people who live in his image over his good creation and enjoying his presence. He's still working towards that. And, and there's this, in all the bad news of Genesis 3, there's one kind of ray of light. It's easy to skip over. One ray of light comes through. He pronounces this curse on the people, on creation, but he also pronounces a curse on the serpent. He also pronounces a curse on the serpent. He says, one of Eve's descendants, well, let's read it. Uh, verse 15 of chapter 3 talks to the serpent and God says I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel he will crush your head so there's this there's this sort of um, really short glimpse of something that was, was going to happen in the future where this serpent would be crushed. And it starts this pattern through the Bible's storyline. God is so committed to his good end for his creation that he makes these promises, these amazing promises all the way through. They're promises to fix up our mess, to undo this curse, 
Uh, often, in, often they're called covenants. You might have heard that word. It's like this special relationship between two parties that's based on these binding promises made between them. Usually has a kind of formal aspect to it, a sign that's given. Uh, if you keep reading, God makes a covenant with Noah um, with the sign of the rainbow. Um, he promises not to destroy humanity again like he did in the flood. Uh, but, but things just keep going spiraling downhill, basically, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, even with that covenant. Until you get to Genesis 11, if, you're, if you know the story, there's the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, which is this monument to human pride, to our glory-seeking. It's on full display, and it's like this um, utter contrast to the garden. But what comes next is really key. It's really important. It's key. Actually, it sets off the trajectory of the whole rest of the Bible. What comes next in Genesis 12 that we had read out for us? God chooses this one man, Abram. He later changes his name to Abraham. He chooses Abram and gives him these incredible promises. As you, as you keep reading the next chapters, you can read how God made it into a formal covenant. But here is the heart of it, what we had read today in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth were cursed in Adam. And now God is going, finally, he's going to do something to reverse that curse, to bring blessing instead of curse. That's what he's doing through this man Abraham and the people that would come through from him. Well, uh, we're really going to skim through the story now, so um, buckle up. Uh, Abraham's family end up in Egypt. Uh, they grow to become this great nation. Uh, they, they get named after one of Abraham's grandson, uh, Abraham's grandson Israel. Uh, they become enslaved. Uh, hundreds of years later, they're brought out of Egypt by Moses in what's called the Exodus. Uh, God gives Moses his good word. He makes another covenant with Moses to establish Israel as a nation. Soon they go into the land God has promised them. They ask for a king. And even though God was their king, he does give them a human king as well. And that's where we pick up the story. Uh, the second king of Israel, the greatest king they had, was a guy called David, King David. And he wants to build a house for God, this temple, this place, a special place of God's presence among his people. He wants to build him a house, but God has a surprise for David. And instead, he tells David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, starting at verse 11, this is God talking to King David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to, su to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's this, this another 
really key moments, this covenant, this God, God promises to establish an etern- his eternal kingdom through one of David's descendants. And all through the, sto- the stories you read through, all through the history of Israel's kings, you're looking for this one who is going to come from the line of David. Solomon, maybe David's son, it kind of starts really well but ends tragically. And it's just actually the same story one after another. No one fits the bill. And things spiral and spiral and spiral, just like they did after the fall. Uh, things spiral with Israel too. Their kings become more and more corrupt. The people again and again turn from God to the false idols around them. And it all ends with another curse from God. The curse of exile. Uh, of Israel being taken into captivity by the, uh, the foreign power of Assyria at first and then by Babylon. Hopefully that stuff's familiar as we've been looking through Isaiah. But it seems again this moment, there's so much there, but again it's, it feels like this moment is this great threat, this great threat to God's good plan, his good design for his world. Uh, no one has come and crushed the serpent's head yet. Abraham's family hasn't brought God's blessing to all the peoples of the earth. None of David's sons have set up God's eternal kingdom. In fact, it's just looking, it's just spiraling in the other direction. But even here, even here at this moment of God's curse in the exile, God is amazing in his faithfulness to his plan, in his powerful grace to sinful people. He promises this new covenant that we had read out for us in Jeremiah 31. This covenant, God says, that I will make with the people of Israel after that time. He says, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's this kind of going to be this intimate connection between them living together. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This new covenant that Jeremiah talks about, it's in line with all those previous ones. It's it's aimed at the same thing, at redirecting creation back to its good end, right? It's right and good goal. But it's a new covenant because God's going to bring about a new thing, a new change you notice that he's going to give his people a new heart. He'll transform them from the inside out. He'll bring complete forgiveness for sin. He'll be present with his people in this new and incredible way. And as you get to the end of the Old Testament story, the Old Testament prophets have a way of talking about this this day, this future hope. They call it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This expectation that God would come and act in power to bring about his good purposes. And here's where uh, we're just really going to fly over this. Um, So there's so much more detail to be gone in with, but just to kind of skate over, paint a picture of this day of the Lord in the Old Testament. It's a day where God would be glorified. Instead of humans snatching his crown on their own heads. God's going to be glorified 
but he'll be glorified in both judgment and salvation. And one of the big themes of the prophets is not only will God judge the nations, but he'll judge Israel as well, his people. But he will save too for his own glory, a remnant for himself, a faithful remnant. In that day, it will be a day where his people who were scattered in the exile would be renewed and gathered under this forever king, the Messiah. And you get glimpses through the prophets. It's not just going to be Abraham's family either, but people from the whole world. Uh, the promise to Abraham always had all peoples in view, remember? And on this day, it would be fulfilled. And not just all people, but the, the creation itself. And we'll get there eventually in Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah, this beautiful picture of a new heavens and a new earth. The creation itself will be made new and redeemed and restored. And in his Messiah, by his spirit, God would be present with his people again in power, in wonder and in beauty. So this day of the Lord is like this massive signpost for the people and the Old Testament, pointing them forward. Uh, there are moments when it looked like this day might have come. Uh, they did return from exile. They even rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, the, the, the place of God's presence for the people of the Old Testament. There were moments where you thought, maybe this day has come, but the reality never matches the, the expectation. This great promise. And it seems like this, this God's plan for his world is just is going to fizzle out. It, it never comes until... Well, until the day when the last of the Old Testament prophets began to cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. Until Jesus came. We're told in the New Testament that all the promises of God, all, all the promises of God are yes in him. He is the reality everything's been pointing to and he blows all of our expectations out of the water. He's the serpent crusher. He's the blessing bringer. He's the forever king, the one who in his death brings about this new covenant. That's what we're going to look at next week. That's what we're going to think a little bit more about next week, the, the way that Jesus himself is the end. But for us, as we've kind of done this Cook's Tour of the Old Testament, uh, what do we take a, away from this today? What do, what do we take away? I want to suggest two things for us, friends. I think seeing this big picture of the impact of sin, the way in which it so deeply corrupts what is so good and beautiful, I think it means that firstly, uh, we should be those who weep for sin. And all the brokenness it brings, the brokenness it brings to people and to the world, the way everything is off kilter, the way sicknesses and viruses infect us, and hatred and violence plague us, the way natural disasters wreak so much havoc. And it's wrong to say that those things are kind of always the direct result of specific sins, that's not what I'm saying, but in the Bible's big picture, they are the result of capital S sin. 
They're symptoms of a world under God's curse. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It can be easy to get used to it, though, can't it? To sort of become numb and hardened to sin and death. We say to each other, it's just life. But it's not. It's not. Sin and suffering are death, and death are not, are not natural. They're just very familiar for now. But they're not the way things are meant to be. And the Bible gives us a framework for that grief that we, we feel but we're not sure what to do with. The Bible allows us not to just paper over it. Whenever we are touched by sin, in whatever way we're touched by it, if we see it in this big picture, we'll see that the, the tragedy of it, the horror of it, of the way in which we steal God's glory for ourselves, uh, the way it's an affront to his good, good purpose, and it's right that we weep for it. I sort of mean that figuratively, in a way, I guess, you know, to, to open our hearts to the sorrow of a broken and fallen world. Um, Fake tears are themselves sinful, so don't you know, kind of force yourself to cry. That's not what I'm talking about. But, um, the, uh, but, but perhaps, also, perhaps also literally too, um, as an expression of what's in your heart. You know Jeremiah, who gave us that wonderful promise? He's known as the weeping prophet because he's just crying all the way through his, his prophecy. Uh, you get to Jesus and he weeps. He weeps over the death of his friend, he weeps over the sin of Jerusalem. He's deeply moved at the brokenness of people around him. Uh, this sort of crept up on me yesterday. I was thinking about these things all week, you know, sort of trying to think about what I'd say today. Um, uh, maybe, you know, on a, on a kind of mental level, trying to get my head around it all. Uh, and then, anyway, I went and did the groceries down at Aldi. Um, I wasn't feeling very sociable, so I put my headphones in and listened to some music while I sort of went around the shops uh, and decided to listen to this album by Colin Buchanan, who we sing a lot of his songs, but he makes great... It wasn't a kid's album. He makes, he, he's made a few really wonderful other albums too. And his song came out. It's so interesting, isn't it, how songs just can grip you at these moments. It's a song called Faith Smiles. It's about this woman who... Uh, showed this remarkable faith in her suffering. And one of the, one of the verses, as I was sort of trolling around Aldi, uh, just hit me. He said, Faith weeps at the mess of sin, real tears for the world we're in. Mercy leaves them overcome with wonder, moved by love so, so tender yet so deep. Faith weeps. Faith weeps. It was, one, it was the one time I was really happy to wear a, be wearing a face mask at the shops because sort of, no one could tell I was blubbering away walking through Aldi. But perhaps, friends, uh, perhaps today you might ask God to soften your heart to see and feel something more of the tragedy of sin and all that it brings. The way that it leads us and you and the whole creation into this curse in place of what we were made for, in place of the blessing 
that God has in store in his, of his design. So that's the first thing I want to encourage you in. Uh, the second is, it sort of flows out from that. We can weep for sin, but we need to watch out for sin too. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 um, that's where I'll finish with this, this passage. The Apostle Paul talks about these examples of sin in the Old Testament. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then down in verse 11, same sort of thing. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. That word culmination is another way of saying the end. The end of the ages has come. Weep for sin, yes, but watch out for it. Watch out for it in your own hearts. My friends, in that verse, verse 11, that uh, uh, we had up before, the culmination of the ages, well, it gives us the reason we can do those things. We can weep, we can watch, we can do those things in hope, even in peace and joy and confidence, filled with his spirit, sure of his forgiveness, certain of his good future, because in Jesus, the end of the ages has come, even as it is still coming. More on that on the next few weeks. Uh, but I, look, I feel like I've been, this has been an overambitious project today that we've been working on, trying to cover the whole Old Testament in half an hour. It feels like a bit like that failed DIY project at the start to me. But if there's one, pro, there's one thing that we can all t please take away from this today, it's this. Our projects don't always come off, but God has not abandoned his projects. He wasn't overpowered by sin, by Satan, by death, by destruction, and the determined plan of the sovereign Lord of history is to bring them all to nothing under his Son, to bring about his good creation where righteousness dwells, where peace and life are made perfect. And friends, the one who calls you is faithful. He has done it in Jesus and he will do it at the end of the age. Let's cast our eyes to him in prayer. Let's pray. Our God, you are so good and your plan is so perfect. We've seen today the way in which this plan has sort of been derailed by human sin, but not just human sin in a kind of abstract way, Lord, we confess that we are swept up in that too. That we take your crown on our own heads, that we live in conflict with each other and with the world. We live rejecting your good rule over our lives. So we confess our sin to you, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, your constant promise, the way in which you have, wound, you have weaved your good design through all things and that you are weaving all things to your good end. Thank you for Jesus, the one who brings the end of all things. Our oh Lord, we pray that you'll help as we keep fixing our eyes on him. 
Help us to rest in your faithfulness, to weep for sin, to watch out for it. And we pray that you, you might help us to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.